0: Okay, sweet. Um, welcome to episode thirty-eight of the Bearish Podcast. We have investing with Frank on. We've had investing with Tom. We've had C.J. Wilson. We've had Brad Kailner, and now we have Frank. It's funny you guys all know each other. We did not plan that. We did not. Uh, we did not plan that uh, to be this way. But it is what it is. Um, Frank, thank you for joining me. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Max and Logan are not here. They are doing soccer, whatever that is. Who cares? We want to talk about so it. I'm about the
1: last, I'm the last punch card investing member to come on. Am I? You are. You are. Missing you are. You are.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So let's just, let's just get right into it. Before I ask you any questions, Frank, just tell me and the audience a little bit uh, who you are and you know, how you got into investing.
1: Yeah. So I originally, I don't know, I kind of came interested in investing during high school So that's about 10 years ago now for me, but um, I really had very little understanding about it at the time. Um, Then I went off to university here in Australia. I did a degree in teaching, but my major is business studies. So I kind of teach high school business and commerce and subjects like that. So a very small section of that is investing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just got really interested in university. I kind of didn't think I would like subjects like accounting and finance and that, but actually really loved it so
0: <laughs> me and you both um, man <laughs> yeah.
1: and i kind of got into some etf investing very early on okay. not really knowing what i was doing just knowing that was a nice safe option and then over the years i kind of read more and more come across people like buffett did the typical value investor readings all the benjamin graham stuff and here i am today so yeah it's worked out well
0: yeah so I mean, I I know exactly what you're talking about with that. Never would I have ever thought that I'd be interested in accounting or any <laughs> kind of math or anything like that. That was not not what I not what I enjoyed in school. So the first person you, um, the first person that really uh, sparked your interest in investing was it Buffett?
1: Uh, yeah, pretty much. So yeah. the first investing book I read was I think it's called The Buffett Way or The Warren Buffett Way, something yeah. along those lines. Um, And that was kind of my introduction, which was just by luck, really. First investing book I saw, I picked it up, picked it up. I knew who Warren Buffett was, but didn't know why he was one of the richest men in the world. So I read the book and it kind of, I think I kind of got lucky to fall down that path rather than how a lot of other people end up in investing.
0: Yeah, with me, um, it's actually funny. A lot of people that do this uh, value investing thing, a majority of them got into it by the same guy and i want you to guess if you know who got me into investing or value investing as a whole
1: uh well i would guess it's either monish probrite or warren buffett i don't know
0: no, it's neither of them it's phil town
1: uh yeah true that's a that's another classic yeah
0: <laughs> i mean it's a classic everyone that has like a value investing page it's always it's always phil town who got them into it. it's funny it's funny yeah, how it right. works that way um so yeah yeah me myself i actually got into investing i'm 21 i'm a junior senior in college i got into investing in the uh, late 2019 right before the market crash. you know perfect timing for me to get into yep. into investing and all i was doing was um buying you know pharmaceutical companies hoping they would skyrocket 100 <laughs> in a day and some of them did most of them didn't and then i i actually um, I learned the hard way so i kept my money in i didn't know i didn't know anything to be honest with you. i didn't know a thing and then march rolled around market tanked like now i realize i i'm i'm waiting for that now i can't wait for that to happen now then i'm like <laughs> oh my god get me out of this i sold everything most of it at a loss and i didn't get back into the market until well alibaba that's uh, pretty much until uh until then so um I wanted to ask you this and I asked Brad this and I want to compare your answers. How was last March for you? Did you did you buy did you sell everything or did you I just want to know how it was for you. Yeah so
1: a bit of context of what I was doing before March. I really started the portfolio I'm running now in March or April 2020. Beforehand I had most of my money in index funds so I had For maybe five or six years, I was purely index funds. Then I started to try a little stock picking. Like I was half in an index fund, half kind of just testing my luck Um, with not too much analysis. I kind of learned more and more as I was going on. And I was kind of waiting for the chance. I was getting to the point where I thought I might be able to do better than index investing, Um, which might not be the case. I'm always happy to go back if I can't do that. But March just so happened I had about 30% of my portfolio in cash. Um, and when the drop happened, I sold everything and started fresh because by that point, I knew that that's a good time to start a portfolio. So my returns have looked exceptional since then, but obviously yeah, right. that's the bias of buying at the lows. <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, it kind of worked out really well for me. I just happened to have a large portion of cash um, and I wanted to change my strategy. I wanted to get out of indexes and start stock picking. So that was the beginning of the portfolio and strategy that I'm running now.
0: Okay. So March worked out well for you.
1: I did. It did. At least really, at least it, it worked out thing. well.
0: It worked out well for one of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brad, I believe, said that he he didn't buy anything. I don't think he I don't think he bought anything in March. In fact, I think he just he just held on for the ride. And actually he said that he had two stocks on his watch list that got down to a certain price it was facebook and uber and he didn't buy either of them he said he said it he said it just went right back up too quickly which it did it did go up very quickly um you're a big fan of twitter aren't you i am you are amazing on twitter i have to tell you (laughs) that you are amazing on twitter those threads i I read every single one of them those threads you put out how much um how much time goes into that man
1: Um, I guess a typical thread where I'm writing like, I don't know, 12 tweets in the thread roughly, takes me about an hour or so. It's kind of stuff that I've already, I already know, I've already been looking into. It's just putting it down in writing that's kind of logical. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the research I do isn't very logical or organized. So things like Twitter and YouTube actually have been really good for me because I kind of just put it down in a couple of documents. Most of it's in my head, but now I'm starting to write things down create videos, which really helps. So Twitter has mm-hmm. been pretty good for that.
0: Yeah. And you own Twitter, right?
1: I do. I own the stock and I love the platform.
0: Oh my God. It's, it's amazing, man. Um, Brad, Brad said that, um, if Twitter can create the value for its shareholders that it creates for its users, I mean, the is the limit for that stock. And I, I never even thought about owning Twitter. And then once he said that, I was like, man, Twitter, that might be a good investment one day. <laughs> Not right now, or maybe I haven't, I haven't done, um, uh, any kind of research on it but Twitter is something to look for
1: yeah so Twitter's not the type of stock I personally would usually buy mm-hmm. um, it's well it was unprofitable it, it's more of a growthy type name it's kind of expensive using typical value metrics yeah but when I was starting the portfolio that was actually the first company I bought uh-huh. I bought Twitter and Kelly Partners Group which Kelly Partners group has performed exceptionally well yeah um, that's now almost half my portfolio. <laughs> And then Twitter, I think it's about an 80%, 80 to 100% gain since I bought it as well. So that's done really well. Um, But I kind of bought it with taking the advantage of the crash and that it was relatively cheap at the time. And compared to all those other social media platforms, it was exceptionally cheap. And in my opinion, I'm certainly biased. I do think it's the best platform. And there's a lot of optionality of different ways they can monetize it going forward, which I think we're starting to see happen now. There was a couple of activists on the share, um, on the board making lots of changes and really making them focus on improvements of the company. And it's slowly playing out at the moment, probably not as quick as I'd like to see, but it's been good so far. So I think long-term, it's going to be a great company.
0: Yeah. I saw something about them accepting Bitcoin as like tips for their users. Is that what that was?
1: Yeah. So they have a thing called um, super followers as well, which is just Um, I guess it's going to take over like a maybe Patreon-type platform. So you can just pay to follow people. But I think they also mentioned something about taking cryptocurrency or Bitcoin as payments as well, which doesn't appeal to me too much, but it is a nice added bonus. Like anything they're doing, if they're trying things, that's great. They're in the position where they can do that. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I liked about the company is all the optionality they have compared to something like Facebook that it really Take advantage of everything and monetize everything really well. Twitter weren't doing that, so there's a lot of runway for growth moving forward.
0: Yeah, and um, you said earlier that um, Twitter is not uh, a, a typical value stock, as you said, like you can't really value it because they're so uh, they were unprofitable for so long. So that that was a good uh, segue into how do you how do you personally value companies when you look at one.
1: Uh, That's a pretty hard question to answer. Every time is different. Like depending on the type of investment I'm making, typically I'm looking for long-term investments. I guess you could call them compounders. Mm -hmm. So high quality companies with high returns on invested capital that have the ability to do so for a very long time in the future, competitive advantages and moats and all those things. Um, To value something like that, it's usually, I guess, a DCF type of valuation can work, but... The simple way I think of it at first is how fast can the actual business grow, the intrinsic value of the business? So say I think that can grow at 10% per year. Um, And then is there going to be multiple expansion? Is this very cheap compared to other similar businesses? If all other businesses that are pretty much the same trade at 10 times sales and it trades at five times sales, which was actually the case for Twitter, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to get some of my return from multiple expansion as well. Um, And the other thing you can look at is a dividend yield. So they might pay a 1% dividend yield. So you add those three things together. And if that's over 15%, then that's kind of when I get interested and I'll move into more deep valuation from there. So what I just ran through then is called, it's by Shelby Davis, who's probably one of the best investors of all time, kind of unheard of, but has one of those like 50 year track records of outperforming the market. Um, And that's how he valued his companies. So, I kind of just taken that on board. I use that as a quick first step evaluation, and then depending on the type of business, you go from there. Whether um, it's an asset play or something like that, you do it a bit different. If it is a compound, you might do a DCF. So, yeah, there's lots of different ways, but that's how I start thinking about it.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's a good idea. Um, I just got into this. Um, I've been I've been into investing for you know, like I said, a little over a year now, but I just got into the valuing. Of companies, right? And I've I've really just, you know, been doing the DCF and trying to, you know, do stuff like that. But the comparison is a good idea. Is that what you said? Did you did you just compare them to similar businesses? Yeah,
1: I think you need to know what other similar businesses can trade for. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, maybe something like an Alibaba. You could use the Western competitors to see what type of multiples they trade for. Um, obviously with Alibaba being down so much in price at the moment, they're much lower. So you could make the assumption that maybe it could return to the multiples that the Western competitors have. If you're less bullish about China in general, which a lot of people are, you might take that down a notch. So if a competitor trades at, um, say, 20 times free cash flow, you might say Alibaba could trade at 18 times free cash flow or something like that. Those aren't the numbers they actually trade at, but that's an example of what I would do.
0: Yeah, hey. Well, you just you're doing my job for me very well. Uh, I'm <laughs> going to talk to you about Alibaba now because um, what I like to do when I look at companies, and this isn't my only research, but I love going on Twitter and I love especially going on YouTube and looking at what people like you and Brad or Tom or uh, you know Hamish Hotter. Yep. Yeah, him, uh, new money. Uh, what's his name? Brandon. Yep yeah, I love watching videos of what you guys have to say. And I love uh, just hearing the points. So I just want to, I just want to hear what your, um, if your, if your opinion of Alibaba at all has changed because they, um, some big news just dropped this past week about they had to like get rid of their 5% stake in this media company. Not that that really means anything in, in terms of their business, because it really doesn't, in my opinion, but Just give me, uh, I guess, your thoughts on Alibaba and I guess what could change your opinion?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I am overly bullish on China in general. Yeah, same. Obviously, the market right now doesn't like China. That's shown in all the stock prices. They're really worried about the government and their regulations going forward. And being a communist country, it happens very fast. If they want to make changes to hurt their companies it can happen overnight whereas the US government are trying to do the same thing with Facebook and Apple and everything else they want to put these regulations in place but it might take five or ten years in China it happens very quickly Mm -hmm. but overall I don't think like I'm not overly pessimistic about China as a market or an economy I think it's just as good or possibly better than the US it's going to be a global superpower forever Mm -hmm. whether or not they're Bigger than the US doesn't really matter. They're going to be one and two for probably ever. I can't see anyone else kind of stepping in there. So if you've liked the US market for the past 50 years, I think you should like China for the next 50 years. Um, So that's kind of my picture on the broader aspect of it. There is going to be these macro things that hurt you. There are going to be regulations that happen fast, but I'm trying not to worry about those too much. I just want to focus on the actual business. And the actual business is exceptional in my mind. There's all these things getting taken away. So like Ant Financial was a fairly significant part of the business, I guess. Maybe you could say it was 5% of Alibaba's intrinsic value. And that's been hurt pretty bad by these regulations. So maybe now it's 1% or 2%. But overall, the rest of the business, the e-commerce platform is growing super fast. It's one of the best businesses in the world. A huge moat and competitive advantage that is not going away the growth on that aspect might slow down, but then they have all these opportunities like cloud and everything else that can offer a very huge return. And if at some point the market decides it likes China again, then we'll see the stock price go up significantly. That's the hope. I don't know if that will happen, but (laughs) that's a nice upside if it does.
0: Yeah, we're both hoping that, Frank. We're both hoping (laughs) that. Um, When did you uh, initially buy into Alibaba?
1: So about Three months after Charlie Munger originally bought in, that was what piqued my interest. Like um, Charlie Munger doesn't buy stuff. It's the first he's bought in 10 years or something crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that started the research. And at first I was like, not my type of business. I usually like smaller micro cap companies. Um, so at first I was just like, I'll do the research. Why is Charlie buying? Was my mindset? I wasn't really looking into it, thinking that I would buy it. But overall, I actually understood the business better than I thought I could. Um, I thought there was a great opportunity, so I ended up buying in around two hundred and five or two hundred and ten dollars or something like that. So okay. I've been hit really hard. I'm down big on that one at the moment. <laughs> Have you averaged down at all? Uh, only very slightly. Okay. I think my my average buying price is about two hundred. So
0: okay, yeah. Um- like you said, Munger doesn't buy anything. So when he buys something, you got to, I mean, like you almost have to do some research. You know what I mean? Like, of course. all right, this dude bought something for the first time in a decade. Like maybe I should look into it. Um, yeah. My average buy price was around the same as yours. I believe it was 212. However, I have been, I've been, I've been averaging down. I think my average is about 162 now. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing okay, but it's not something I really want to look at every single day you know what i mean i just get notifications on my phone from fidelity like oh alibaba hit a 52 week low and i'm like okay well i guess i'll add in some um what do you think the cherry on top would be if i was i was thinking about this when all the 13 F's were coming out i was like man if warren but if berkshire buys alibaba mm-hmm. man what would that do to the stock i'm sure it would skyrocket it a little bit you think he'll buy it
1: uh, I, I think he should, Yeah, but I sure. don't, I don't think he will. Um, just the fact that Charlie Munger clearly understands the business and they work so closely together. I thought there actually might be a chance because Warren Buffett can really only invest in maybe a hundred different companies around the world. If he wants to make a sizable investment, mm-hmm. just because of how much money, if he wants to put 10 billion towards a company and not own the whole thing, yeah. there's not many choices he has. And out of the choices he has, I think Alibaba seems the cheapest. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he doesn't have the same mindset as Charlie Munger. It would be like we can assume he's looked at it. If Charlie's bought it, we assume that he has these conversations with Charlie. So for whatever reason, he does not want to take that risk. But um, yeah, I don't think he will. But I'd love to see it happen.
0: What do you think the reason is? Because I when when I didn't see him buy it, I was like, okay. Because when those thirteen F's came out, I saw Menespari added fifty six percent. Um, I saw Guy Spear bought it. I saw Phil Town buy it. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, what, what's keeping Warren from this? And I couldn't, I couldn't really come up with anything.
1: Um, probably the main reason is he is pretty adverse to investing in tech companies, um, yeah. even though he has nearly all his portfolio in Apple at yeah. the moment. So <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive, but he is historically, he likes to stay away from that, those companies. And then he probably isn't as bullish on China as Charlie Munger is. Charlie Munger's been very close with Lu for a very long time. So he probably has a very different opinion of the economic system and political system in China. Um, I could only guess that Warren Buffett doesn't share that opinion. There's been interviews, like that recent one, I don't know where it was from, but the most recent Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett interview, Charlie kind of seemed very bullish, pushed out the China opinion, and Buffett was very quiet. So I just assume he's probably, um, yeah, doesn't want to take that risk with the Chinese economy and isn't as bullish about it all.
0: Yeah. That's all I can think of. Um, I mean, I guess there's, you know, risks and delisting and stuff like that, that I don't really think is going to happen at all. Um, I think you have to be bullish on China, right? Like they're going to overtake the U S economy in uh, not a few years, but in the future they will like 100%. And, and, um, I I wouldn't want to own any other Chinese company in my in my eyes. You could argue Tencent, I guess, but yeah, I'm good with Alibaba. Right? You feel that way?
1: Well, I actually own Tencent as well. So yeah,
0: you do. Well, Um, what are you? Um, that's a good transition. What are you most bullish on? Alibaba or Tencent?
1: uh, I talked about this in the Punchcard Investing live stream yesterday. Actually, Um, unpopular to probably my audience and. Oh, or the no. similar audiences on YouTube, I actually like Tencent a little bit
0: more. Oh, Frank, um, I own Tencent.
1: <laughs> but um, I own seven companies, and those are two of them. So I'm clearly very, very bullish on both. But um, I do like Tencent a lot more. I like the gaming aspect of the business. It's just more interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I also think they've diversified away from China a lot more than Alibaba has, which kind of takes away a little bit of the risk. Although there's still a lot of risks involved in that one as well. But um, I think it can grow a little bit faster. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'd am sli- I would slightly lean towards Tencent if I had to choose, but I like both businesses.
0: I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. That's <laughs> fine. That's fine. Um, for me, me personally, I am bullish on China. I just don't want to be overexposed, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so, I'm the same way. Yeah. I've already, I kind of said to myself, I wouldn't want to go past 20% of my portfolio into China. I'm slightly over that, I think. And I'm not going to trim or anything, but I definitely don't want to add any more exposures to the region yeah. in the near future. Maybe if things smooth out, um, maybe long-term there'll be a change in government or something that really makes it a much better environment to invest in. But I think 10 to 20% of a portfolio is probably all we should be thinking about in my yeah. mind.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that... Um... I think that there will be a, a smoothing out period. I just think that they're going at it so hard right now and so quickly that it's just really freaking everybody out. Um, but that's, I mean, there's fear in the market. That's when you buy, right? That's what, that's what we've been told by the greatest investors ever. Um, so yeah, speaking of, well, speaking of China, this kind of goes in, into kind of, uh, I, asked, I asked Brad this, Would you ever ra- would you ever want to run a fund? And I ask you this right after the China question because I I believe if I'm sitting here running a fund and I'm putting lots of money into China where it looks absolutely terrible right now, I'm I'm guessing a lot of my investors would be probably you know very angry at me and um, um, you know at, like screaming at me, sending me emails. I probably get a little bit annoyed. So would you want to run a fund with? just managing all these people's personalities and, and, and their opinions and their thoughts when you could just do it by yourself and not have to worry about anyone but you?
1: Uh, personally, I probably wouldn't want to run a fund. Um, I would love to be able to live off my own portfolio. If I had enough money to invest um, and kind of invest to live, that would be the dream. So yeah. I'm managing my own portfolio. I don't want to manage other people's money. Um, I also don't think I would be as good of an investor if I had other people's money. I would certainly be more cautious. I would certainly, like like you said, you'd have to stay away from things like China unless you want people to take money out of your fund, which is essentially a fund manager is more of a, well, a big part of their business is to be a salesperson. They have to convince other people to give them money and keep their money there. And that's not something I like to do. I like the analysis part of it. I like to stock pick. So I wouldn't mind a job along those lines, maybe like an investment analyst or something like that, some kind of researcher. Mm-hmm. But to actually own and manage a fund, I think, would be a very stressful, unappealing career choice in my mind. Once you got to the level that Bri or someone is where they've got billions and they can kind of sit back and everyone trusts what they're doing, that would be okay, but realistically, I'm not going to get there. So being a small fund manager, I think would be a stressful, terrible job, but I do love it. <laughs> I do love yeah, investing. So, Yeah. It,
0: it would be, I I I think it would be fun, but I think it sounds fun because I'm not doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe doing it by yourself is a little better. And you said you, you, so you wouldn't mind working with a a firm or funds just doing some research and stuff like that
1: yeah i wouldn't mind i don't think it's something i'll actually end up doing okay um but yeah i think that would be an okay job like i'm yeah. a teacher at the moment and that's not the best job so <laughs> i'd be I happy think... to sit there and research all day and get paid for it
0: yeah right right yeah i wouldn't mind that either um i'm actually i actually just applied for an internship at this at this firm and the problem is i've applied to so many uh, investment banks and stuff like that, like J.P. Morgan Chase and, and things like that, but most of them, almost all of them, don't implement these value investing principles, right? So I, I found, fa- I finally found this one called Harris Associates, and go on their website, and it's all based on value investing. And I was like, oh my god, this is the dream right here. <laughs> so I, I applied, and we'll see how that goes. But I think that's a big problem with what we do, right? Because most most firms and funds don't really, you know practice value investing?
1: Yeah, well, we're pretty much in a 5% minority. That's a number I heard Lily throw out there. I don't know if there's statistical numbers to back that up, but we're definitely a minority when it comes to institutional investing a lot, um, at least anyway. So yeah, most funds are probably running a more growthy short-term strategy. And I guess that kind of is how you keep money in the fund is you have these short-term targets, you can reach them, you can tell them Mm -hmm. Next quarter, this is the results we expect. These are the companies we're buying. Um, You can quickly turn over stocks if your investors don't like them. It doesn't hurt hurt you to sell out. They're usually very diversified. So you can just sell out of a company to appeal to your investors. So um, Yeah. yeah, it's definitely hard to find a good job in that field as well. It kind of aligns with your values.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, I wanted to play this game with you and I don't know if it'd be much of a game because you might just take it over and go, uh, you know, (laughs) solo. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to do a little do's and don'ts of long-term investing or value investing, if you will, because, um, uh, there's a lot of people on YouTube that, that say they're long-term investors and they're absolutely not. When you watch their videos, like they're the exact opposite of that. So I just wanted to, um, Hear from you some do's and don'ts of long-term investing, so I can, you know, make a, a a video of this and post it, so people can hear from an actual value investor some do's and don'ts. So, so give me, give me like, give me like two or three do's and don'ts of value investing.
1: Um, if we're looking from a long-term framework, I guess, which is I think important for value investing, you're not going to realize value over a short term. There, there really is two different strategies you can find. Like the 50 cent dollars in some kind of special situation which is still value investing but it is short-term focused um every now and then i'm inclined to an idea around that but for this example i'll go with long-term value investing okay um so i think it's important to have a concentrated portfolio is probably the first thing if you're diversified into say over 20 or 30 names you're pretty much going to have market average returns so you may as well go and invest in an index if you own over 30 stocks, in my opinion. Unless, of course, you're very heavily weighted to your top five names or something
0: like that. So what's what's um, concentrated, in your opinion? How many stocks is that? uh, I think
1: a good range is probably 10 to 15 is a good range. Um, The better you are, the lower that could go. Like, um, If you can be a great investor with five stocks in your portfolio, that's probably the best thing to do. I'm slightly less risk adverse than that. Um, I, I'm early on right now. So I actually only have seven, but ideally long-term around that 10 to 15 range is pretty ideal for me. Okay. So
0: yeah, that sounds like a good number.
1: Yeah. I think if you want to outperform the market, you have to be concentrated and that's, there's no doubt about that. If you're yeah. very diversified, you by an index, you're going to have market average returns, which is fine. That's great for most people. 99% of people probably should do that. But if you want to outperform, you definitely need to be concentrated. Um, another thing I think you need to do is look in markets all around the world. You need to be a global investor. If you focus in one market and that market's very expensive, you can't be a very good value investor. So you need to look for opportunities wherever you can. Um, certainly, there's some places that you probably should avoid. Some people would say that's China, but I'd be leaning more towards things like um, Turkey or something where there's currency issues. Um, I know for Bry invests there, and he probably knows more than I do, but That's kind of where I draw the line is these very fragile markets. But most countries that I can access, I think you should be looking for ideas. Um, And that's also gives you an edge over most institutional investors. So I know most funds only look in the US. Sometimes they'll go into um, countries like the UK or Canada as well. But yeah, as retail investors, I think definitely you need to look around the world. Um, And the other thing is, you need to look at small, illiquid companies. So micro-cap and small-cap companies, that's a big thing that I like to push. Um, just again, institutional investors can't invest in these companies. So they're more likely to be mispriced than a Facebook or a Google or an Apple yeah. where there's thousands and thousands of Harvard-educated business analysts looking at the business. All these funds own it. It's probably fairly priced. Every now and then there could be a crash that gives you opportunities in those names and that's fine. But really, if you want to outperform, you need to look at the companies that no one else is looking at um, or where it's overly fearful at the time. So China's a pretty good example of that at the moment. Mm -hmm. So there's three do's um, and don'ts probably don't sell. (laughs) Having Having a framework to actually hold onto your stocks forever is a pretty good idea in my mind. I don't follow that strictly, but I am a very reluctant seller. And that's definitely important as well. That long-term time horizon, like we said, probably 95% of these funds are short-term focused going quarter to quarter. So if you can focus on five and 10 years and longer, then you definitely have an advantage as well. So my don't would be don't sell unless absolutely necessary. Be a very reluctant seller.
0: Those are perfect. Although I'm going to challenge you on one of these. Okay. Go for it. What is this absolutely necessary um, um, selling rule? What, what would you consider absolutely necessary?
1: Um, so you don't want to look at surface level valuation is the main thing because a company could go from very cheap to expensive and stakes that expensive for a very long time. So if you're in, you may as well stay in, in my opinion. But if the business fundamentally changes and... Okay say what you liked about the business and what they were doing and what was going to lead to good returns and growth in the future. If that changes, then maybe you think about selling. Or if it's ridiculously egregiously overvalued like a Tesla, um, that would be something I personally would sell out of at the moment. (laughs) Um, And if you bought into Tesla, why it was cheap, good for you, that's fine. But that's to the point where valuation might make me sell. Otherwise, I guess if you're fully invested um, so you've got $0 cash and you see a exceptional opportunity, then you need to take away your worst opportunity in your portfolio at the time. So if something's only offering you a 5 to 10% return, but you found this great opportunity where you're certain you can get 20% returns, then you can switch the money over like that. That would be reasonable as well. But even ideally, you would want to find the cash elsewhere before doing that if you can
0: yeah yeah those are good rules Uh, uh cj said um opportunity costs like what you just said right there which i think i think that's probably the easiest way to sell to to come up to uh with the decision to sell is okay maybe this thing's way overvalued this thing right here is undervalued maybe i should trim this right here sell it all and put it into that yeah it's a good idea um i was gonna ask you one more thing and i completely forgot damn um I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to remember it. But I do want to ask you more about microcaps because I know you are a, a big advocate for those, right? Um, how I guess, I guess a, a good question for me as well as the audience is, how do you, or what have you found uh, to be the best way to find uh, companies uh, as a whole, but like smaller companies? What, what's the best way to, what, what's the best way to find those?
1: I'm probably, this is probably not an answer most investors should say, but Twitter really has been the best (laughs) way for me to source ideas. And it's more so meeting and talking to other small fund managers, other retail investors that have a similar strategy to me and sharing ideas. Twitter just happens to be the space that a lot of people go to share those ideas. ideas. There's things like Value Investors Club and that as well, where some ideas go, but um, I don't know if I've ever made an investment from an idea in there. But often it's just um, networking, people you meet. I meet those people usually through Twitter, we share ideas and that's often where a lot of them come up. Um, 13Fs is another way for larger companies. You can idea source that way, which is fine. But more so, I like to look at smaller fund managers that are kind of earlier on in their career, have less money, run a similar strategy than as I do and look at their holdings. That's probably one of the main ways I get ideas from. I do run screens every now and then, but I think only maybe one of my ideas have come from a screen. Um, But yeah, they're probably the main ways is just really networking and knowing people and then looking at fund managers that have similar strategies to you and ideally don't have too much money. So they can invest in the same companies I want to invest in and have a look at what they own too
0: yeah yeah sounds like uh sounds like the twitter is the answer for everything right twitter sounds (laughs) like you it sounds like twitter you can pretty much do anything on with investing twitter and youtube man what sites do you use uh to to screen or to uh just do research on your companies because i saw someone put this on twitter speaking of twitter someone put this on twitter uh the other day i think it was brad and he said what sites free sites do you use to uh uh, do some research. And I put Morningstar and macro trends. I don't know if you've heard, I'm I'm sure you've heard of Morningstar, but have you heard of macro trends?
1: Yeah, every now and then I it comes into yeah. my research a little bit. I do, I don't go to it specifically, but sometimes I need to find information and that's a decent place. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um so I, I'm just curious, what do you use? The main thing I use probably for
1: most of my surface level research, like when I first come across a ticker, Oh, there you go. The company's called TIKR, (laughs) T-I-K-R.
0: I've heard of (laughs) Um, that. yeah.
1: Yeah, and it just has about 20 years of financial data. So um, it gives you a good outlook of how this company has performed for as long as it's existed or publicly traded at least. Going back to 2004 is the earliest data they have on there. Um, And to go through the financial statements over that long time period is just a great place to get started to kind of determine if you like this company. They also have things on there like what super investors own. They have like um, other ownership, like how much the insiders own, Mm -hmm. all that type of information. They have valuation metrics. You can run easy comparisons. There's charts and things on there. It's pretty much everything you need to do your surface level research. And beyond there, then I think you're going to the investor relations page of the company and looking at their actual reports, 10Qs, 10Ks and um, investor presentations and things like that. Yeah, But uh, yeah, surface level, I spend most of my time on Ticker. Is ticker free? It's free for now. Um, I oh. think they plan on charging towards the end of this year is what they originally said. Um, it has been pushed back in the past, so I don't know what will happen.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but at the moment, all you need is a referral link and you can sign up for free.
0: Well, how do you get one of these links, Frank? Because I feel like I need to get on Ticker
1: uh ticket.com forward slash frank
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll do that i'll do that okay but, um, you could
1: just google search it There's, they're all through forums like it's not hard to come by one i will use yours in my description i don't make money from that i um it is an affiliate so in the future when they charge if you use my link and then you decide to pay i would make a profit but all for right. now that makes me no money
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to use yours just in case you do make money. All right. How about that? <laughs>
1: thank you. <my laughs> that's man.
0: that's that's a that's a thank you from for joining the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ticker. Yeah. That sounds good. That sounds good. 20 years of financial data. That's a lot. Or 15, you said?
1: Yeah. Back to 2004. If the company's been around that long.
0: Wow. That's crazy. Morningstar only you know goes back just like Yahoo Finance or anything else. These go back you know 10 years. Um. All right, Frank. Uh, we're we're about done. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you one more question and then uh, we can talk off uh, camera or yeah, off recording for a little bit. If if you have time, do you have time? Yeah, easy. Okay, cool. So my last question for you, Frank, is, and I I can, I can answer it too, because I like, I like playing this game. I'll say, I'll say, um, give me, well, first of all, do you have a watch list? Because the last two people, that we had on this podcast, I asked if they had a watch list and they both told me no, which I don't believe. Do you have a watch list?
1: Yeah, I've definitely got a watch list. I okay, have, thank you. I have two separate watch lists. I have a narrowed down five to 10 names that I really am interested in. And then I have another one of about 40 or 50 names that just kind of sit there and I don't do the work that I probably should be on that one. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we finally have a normal person on this podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> um, give me, give me three to five stocks that you're most interested in that you're just waiting for the price to be right and you're and and you'll and you buying in, just waiting for that price to be right?
1: Um, so there are a couple that actually, I think price is right at the moment. I'm kind of just waiting to have cash and to see what my best opportunity is.
0: Okay. Um, what are those? Of course
1: I, so one is Hingham Institute for Savings, which is a small bank in the US. It operates mostly in... Uh, Massachusetts they have I think it's 11 10 or 11 offices and that are they're all in Massachusetts except for one just started in Washington DC um, compared to other banks all they focus on is real estate lending pretty much to both um, commercial and personal investors um, so just housing essentially and they they've started in Washington DC C now because they think that's a similar market to Massachusetts um, And then they also have like their bank deposits and stuff as well, but compared to a normal bank, it's pretty easy to understand because they really focus on three things and they're a very efficient bank. Their expenses are much lower than any other bank that exists pretty much in the top 1% of all banks for their efficiency ratio is what you'd look at for a bank. Um, They have high returns on equity and it's a great company with great management. That's definitely one I like and there's a good chance I buy into that one in the future. I do want to see price come down slightly. Mm -hmm. They're trading slightly above their historical average, but um, I don't think it's expensive. I think it's fine at the moment. I I would like to see it come down. Another one that um, maybe I'm not quite there on with research, but I like a lot so far is Automatic Bank Services, which is a ticker SHVA. I think it is. It trades in Israel. So a very obscure market that, Certainly has some risks. It's only a small market. I think, ten million or nine million population, even, but that's pretty much a Mastercard or Visa of Israel.
0: You just made a video um, about that, didn't you? Yeah, just yeah. A video. I put that. I put that video on my watch later. I have to watch it. I have to watch yeah. it.
1: So that's definitely one I'm interested in. Um, they have all the same competitive advantages and moat that a Mastercard and Visa have, okay. and they don't operate in Israel. They. Both MasterCard and Visa own 10% stakes in this company. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, that's a nice little one to, that I think would do well for a long time. And they trade exceptionally cheap compared to other larger companies that do the same thing. So if the market decides they like Israel at some point, that would do very well. Um, of course, there is some risks involved by investing in a micro cap in Israel. But
0: that's what I'm interested I'm gonna, in. I'm going to write this Automatic
1: one. Bank Services, the ticker is okay. SHVA. Okay. Um, let's have a look i'll actually pull my watch list up so i can give you another one those are two yeah uh, give, me, one. give me me oh. some
0: yeah, yeah keep going
1: nintendo nintendo is a bigger company uh, that i've been looking at i'm on microcap Um, yeah. they're that one's hard it, it is a cyclical company at the moment big time uh, um just because of console sales but they are starting to smooth that out with some recurring revenues from some of the software that they sell um, so they're shifting away from being a cyclical company. They're starting into theme parks and stuff like that as well. So that's more reoccurring revenues as well. They're even going into the entertainment space. Their IP is insanely valuable. Things like Pokemon and Mario, mm. um, all those things is just exceptional value that they can monetize in so many different ways. And then they have a huge cash pile at the moment mm. that historically was a problem for them. They have like no debt. And all this cash that they were doing nothing with for like the past 10 years. So that's like the worst capital allocation decision ever is to just (laughs) sit cash there and do nothing.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: But they've just started to kind of reinvest some of this cash and even buy back shares, which is rare for a Japanese company. They usually like to just pay dividend and pile cash because they went through this ridiculous period in the eighties. I think it was or maybe nineties huge inflation and their stocks just crashed hard. So the managers over there like to hoard cash just in case of these occasions. So it makes it very safe. Like I don't think you're going to get a poor result in any way. Maybe you don't get big returns, but you're not going to lose much money with a cash pile that big and a great brand. Yeah. Um, so that's one that I see a pretty good upside coming from as well, assuming management can execute. But I would like to see that one get a little bit cheaper okay. to make returns more appealing, but I do like the business a lot, so well there's three names anyway that i like a lot
0: okay yeah i've been looking at nintendo as well um the only thing that was throwing me off and i haven't done my you know due diligence uh, i haven't dug that deep into the company but just looking at the stock price you know over the last however uh, many years it's you can just tell like it goes up when they release the console and then it just goes right back down to where it was and then you know just it's a lot of boom bust based on when they release their consoles, right? So, um, what you said is um, they're they're gonna you know smooth that out. I think CJ said that they're gonna focus on the Switch for a little bit and then just do things with the Switch. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I think they kind of try and think of the Switch as like an iPhone, and okay. really just improve the Switch over time, um, which definitely helps with cyclicality as well. If that was the case, um, I don't know if that's the best decision, but. I don't understand enough to know where, how that would actually play out. But I think the best thing for recurring revenues will be the software and subscription type things that they're actually selling as well that can smooth it out. So you can still have a somewhat of a cycle and go between consoles and have a bad console here and there and be okay as your subscriptions continue to grow. And then your things like theme parks and entertainment media that can get some extra revenue to kind of back up when you don't have a good console out and don't have that excess, excess capital coming through.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Nintendo's a good one. Um, so are those, the, are those the ones that you're most excited about getting to a certain price?
1: Uh, yeah, those three. Another one is one that I used to own, VRQ Solutions. And I only sold out of that company to buy an engagement ring, of all things. So.
0: <laughs> well, that's a and- good reason, Frank.
1: Yeah, I needed. I couldn't use personal savings to do that. Of course, my partner would know that the money was missing, so I had to choose something in the portfolio that was my lowest conviction idea at the time. So I sold out of that to buy a ring and add added the rest into Alibaba at the time. So,
0: so that one got the short end of the stick, huh?
1: So that one's definitely right there. I, I just yeah. need to consider my options when I do have enough cash to buy a new position.
0: Okay. All right. Um, I'll, I can give you. Um, uh, I'll give you a couple um what's my what do you consider micro cap by the way or what's the what's the universal definition of a micro cap
1: uh most common would say under 300 million is okay, a micro so not, cap.
0: not under a billion
1: under a billion or under 2 billion some people say would be a small cap and i still love oh, okay. small caps too
0: yeah. okay well i have a small cap on my watch list i you might have heard of this company because i know they are in australia as well it's called zoomies and they're is that like the skateboard shop yeah i think i think their um, australian brand is blue tomato have yeah that might be that? right yeah yeah so um i'm i'm i love um i love all of their their uh their shirts uh odd future have you heard of that
1: Yep, yeah
0: yeah odd future santa cruz um they have a lot of thrasher they sell vans like you said they sell skateboards i i love that i love that shop and um I know retail as a whole uh, isn't expected to grow very much into the future, and if anything, uh, there's going to be a big shift to e-commerce. But I think that they they have their e-commerce uh, down pretty well, and so that's one that's one I'm interested in. Their their uh, market cap is a billion, so that that would be considered a small cap, right? Yep. Okay, and then um, another one is a, a six billion dollar company, it's, uh, Boston Beer. Have you heard of that? i've heard
1: i don't know too much about it but i have heard of the company yeah
0: they they sell um well i don't know what the alcohol situation is over there in uh, australia but they sell samuel adams uh truly hard seltzer twisted tea have you heard of any of those no (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair enough uh it's it's an it's an american company uh brewery anyways um, but actually, fun, funny thing, well, not funny. It's kind of quite annoying, to be honest with you. They peaked at, a, at about $1,300 a couple months ago. And they've fallen all the way to 500 bucks. And in my estimates, they're so expensive still. And it just makes me so mad that they've took this dramatic drop. And I I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, because I, I don't like... Um, I'm not the biggest fan of alcohol, but I know those brands well, and I know that those brands are killing it over here. Um, so I, I just looked into the company a little bit and I was like, man, there's no chance this thing is still overvalued. And it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And it's so frustrating. And then another one, um, another one that I would just love to buy is, oh, this one's a good one. iRobot. You know what iRobot is?
1: no i don't
0: it's those um
1: the movie with will smith is that
0: it <laughs> yeah yeah that one yeah i would love to buy stock in that <laughs> uh, it's they they sell um uh, automated vacuum cleaners so you just you just uh, yeah, yeah, press one yeah, button well yeah. and they they do it by themselves they pretty much own the market apart from um shark uh, okay. it's just another it's just another company but their their market cap is 2 billion so I, I'm taking your advice in uh, doing the, the smaller companies. Obviously, Facebook would be amazing to own. Twitter, if I could get another drop, I would love to buy after talking to uh, at least two of you t- telling me how great Twitter is, which which I've come to my senses and I, I, I uh, know that it is. So Zoomies, um, Boston Beer, iRobot. And then... I mean, I mean, there's just not many great companies out there that are, even if the market crashed by 50 percent, that they get, get even close to on sale, right? Is that what you're thinking?
1: Uh, yeah, with a lot of names, that's definitely <sighs> the case. One company that I would love to own is Sea Limited, which is, I guess, you could say the Southeast Asia version of Amazon or Tencent, probably is a better comparison. Okay. And they're growing at like exceptional rates, like 100% revenue growth each year. Like they're still in full growth mode, um, but they are very expensive. Um, At some point, I would expect those multiples or the valuation to half from what it's worth at the moment. And then maybe you're at about fair value at the time. So if the market crashed and that got hit hard, that's when I would love to own. Exceptional company, exceptional management, a lot of growth to go. So that's one of the names I love, but just sits on my watch list knowing that i'll probably never own it but i would love to all
0: right all right frank um well i want to talk to you more off off the camera off the podcast because i do have a couple questions for you but uh we've been recording for about about an hour now which is i didn't get a i didn't get a i didn't get something from zoom so thank god for that but um, that, that'll, that'll do it. Frank, uh, the last thing that you can do, man, is just plug, plug your podcast and, or earn uh, not your podcast, your YouTube channel, plug, plug, whatever.
1: Yeah. So my YouTube channel, I've just changed the name of in the last few days. It's now Frank Tabor, which is just my name. Previously it was investing with Frank. So I'm sure if you search that, it probably still pops up. Um, am at Frank investing on Twitter or my username is Frank Tabor. Again, my normal name, you can find me there. They're the two places I do everything. So come check them out.
0: All right. All right. That's, that, that's it, guys. Um, that was episode 38. Frank, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Uh, if you want to go follow us and uh, watch these podcasts, uh, go to Bearish Podcast on our YouTube. We have a Shorts page as well at Bearish Podcast or at Bearish Shorts. Uh, this podcast can be heard on uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, any, anywhere else, really. Uh, go follow us on Instagram at Bearish Podcast. And that is it, guys. Thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you guys next episode.